Gentlemen, I hope you appreciate the situation. Things have gone south. No doubt. Now, whatever you saw or did is no longer my concern. But let's be clear. It won't end well. Welcome to the latest episode of Movies from Green Hell, the movie podcast where we delve into films with heavy metal soundtracks, terrible stoner movies, and other such nonsense. I'm Dylan, and joining me for this episode is Jeremy Hunt, who is uh, no stranger to guesting on Diary of Doom or uh, Movies from Green Hell, as he was in the first episode of this podcast, uh, as were uh, one of the two previous uh, guest hosts, John. So welcome back. Good to have you back on one of these podcasts. <laughs> What's up, dude? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to be back and uh, looking forward to diving into the movie we're talking about this episode for sure. For the good folks at home, uh, can you just tell people briefly, like, you know, a little bit about yourself and like what you do and sure. what you're involved with uh, artistically, yeah. musically, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, musically, we'll start there. I uh, play and yell in the band Koheleth, uh, noise rock mostly, uh, leaning band, experimental stuff. And then uh, I have a solo sort of noise glitch project called Ain't Pancakes. I guess the the main thing right now that I'm working on is uh, kind of a side project of Koheleth where we're in the middle of a series of releases where we're taking fake bands appropriately enough i guess for today's uh discussion we're taking fake bands from our second album which was a like this post-apocalyptic story from the future and we're giving uh four of them their own full-length releases and so we're we're at the front end of that and so the first one came out about a month or two ago on euphoriatic and that one was uh, by the band territorial pissants <laughs> and then we're <laughs> we got we got three more in the works one's completed and with the uh, another label that's going to be putting it out and then i'm wrapping up the last two with some friends who are collaborating so yeah that's what i got going on so you you have like a little like uh personal uh, i i guess you wouldn't call it cinematic but a like musical universe like of your own little thing with like yeah. bands and stuff yeah yeah it's, it, i mean it's <clears throat> definitely sort of taken on a life of its own but yeah that that second album uh, Black Kite broadcast got a lot of people's attention, um, and just you know, a lot of friends have come back and said how much they revisit it and they like it. And over the pandemic, even though you know we're a year or two out from it, I basically just started messing around with more beat-related stuff. Got some pocket operators, some little pocket synths, um, and I also started diving into old Kohela stuff that never saw the light of day stuff that we were working on. And, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, just either like a drum line or a guitar part or something. 
and I was just like, I wonder if there's anything here. And so basically, as I was messing with those things over the course of, I don't know, a year and a half or two years, I realized it's like, oh, there's enough material here to potentially have a few different releases, but I don't know how to properly do it. And then and talking with Mike in the band and and Caden, I was like, maybe we maybe we split these into different releases. And then that's the idea, the idea of like revisiting Black Eyed Broadcast came up by way of saying, okay, what if we actually gave some of these bands their own full releases? And so that's that's what this turned into. And it's been a lot of fun. So hopefully folks will dig it. And because each of the releases actually are I think people will probably hear when it's all said and done some sonic similarities, but like the ain't pan, uh, the not ain't pancakes, the territorial pissants is very much like noise and drone focused. One of the other ones, a band called Splatter, is ending up being more sort of like lo fi instrumental hip hop stuff. So it, hopefully it's pressing out in different ways that allows them to feel like, oh, these could be like their own standalone things, but they're, you know, there's this connective tissue. So it's fun. It's just, it's a way of sort of world building. Ultimately, there's a backstory there that I'm hoping to like actually sit down and write out at some point so we could flesh it out in some other ways too. So we'll see. It's a cool approach to world building as opposed to, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be 1000 pages long because half (laughs) of it is me explaining the world, even though it's super interesting and cool. Right. Uh, doing a musical approach to that i'm assuming straight up challenging because it's non-conventional you know storytelling in some way yeah well and and it's it's still it, it allows us to still lead with the music and let that be the centerpiece mm-hmm. of it and then to say okay how might this fit in with the idea of the black kite crisis which is set in like the 2050s i think is the timeline that we put in there um, and so the idea is basically like at some point in the future, um, the world as it is, the creation, nature, et cetera, basically got tired of us as humans mistreating it and disrespecting it. And essentially like animals, plant life, all that basically rose up to overthrow mm-hmm. most of us. And so that's kind of the baseline of it. And so with these four releases, it's it's an opportunity to go back and be like, okay, what if there was like a central or maybe not a central event, but a key event centered around, you know, some sort of a a festival that, you know, set, you know, was one of the domino pieces that kind of set some of this stuff into motion. So again, there, there's little elements of that sprinkled in where, you know, folks want to dig into the storytelling aspect they can and hopefully get some fun things out of it, but you can also just come in casually and just, you know, listen and hopefully enjoy the, the weird noise and sounds. Um, that that feels very influenced by your love of uh, movies where, and especially the kinds of movies where they don't necessarily explain everything. They sort of just give it to you because, yeah. you know, they only had like $5,000 to make the fucking movie to begin yep. with. Like yep. that kind of shit. I just watched one before we recorded. I'll talk about it way later. That's very much just, here you go. And you can either, like you said, choose to really pick apart like what is this what does this mean how does this work who does this carry you know or you can just be like this is cool this is interesting and it's like that's totally acceptable i feel like if you were uh, a person of uh much bigger ego you you would be like you don't fucking get it man but you're not (laughs) (laughs) now well and it's fun for me because i feel like it's an aspect of what i love about a lot of the bands and the like you were saying even film stuff that's come before me and that's influenced me is that 
there's something really cool about uh, a confidence in storytelling of like laying the groundwork and having some of the stuff in the background and, and, and saying, essentially trusting the listener slash viewer to kind of choose how deeply they want to get invested. And if you want to get invested in it more deeply, hopefully that's providing a rewarding experience. But if you also just want to like come at it casually, there's some takeaways as well. So, I mean, there's stuff, you know, the, the thing I'm really thankful for is that there are a number of communities, artistic communities that I'm a part of that have allowed me to sprinkle some of these like, you know, breadcrumbs, if you will. So like Euphoriatic put out the Territorial Pissants release. Before that, they had invited us to participate in a few of their compilations, which included a zine, a print zine, along with either a digital comp or the, or the comp on tape. And so um, at least on one of those, we dropped, I think, a demo track from one of these releases. And then also in one or two of the zines, Caden and I worked on some visuals together that, again, sort of hinted at this. So if you were paying attention and looked at all this and started like putting the pieces together, you might've been able to see that this was coming, but otherwise, hopefully it, it also just stood on its own. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff that's fun to do. Now, that being said, I think this movie that we're discussing today is pretty defined in <laughs> what it's about, Yeah, um, but it definitely yeah. does do a, uh, a good job of just presenting you as like, this is the situation. And yes. these are the characters and, you know, they're dealing with this, like, as it comes, as opposed to including a lot of exposition and, and stuff like that. It's all yeah. very clearly defined and kind of like how really kind of straightforward it is. And uh, the movie we're, <clears throat> we're talking about is uh, 2015's Green Room. Mm. Um, so what's your background with this movie? Did you see this in theaters or watch this at home? I'm almost 100% sure I watched this at home in large part because uh, I remember seeing the preview and just thinking, this looks incredible. I need to watch it, but I don't remember. I know it had a fairly limited release, I think. I don't know if it had a very wide release. And uh, let's see, 2015, I would have been in, we would have just moved to California the the summer before yeah, I think I must, and I was in school and working full time, so I probably didn't catch this until it it you know came out on digital or something. But I mean, when I saw it and and heard what it was about, I was like, oh, I have to watch this as soon as I can. And so, yeah, once it I think became a little bit more widely available, that that's when I, I tracked it down. Uh, I too watched it at home at the suggestion of my friends who were. Uh very enthusiastic about how just quick and tight and effective that this movie was and didn't really meander yes. around any kind of point or anything like that. And yes. I watched it with my partner, Sarah, and I left her shook. Uh, she did not join in on the rewatch of it. Obviously, the movie involves some really like bad characters, but in terms of like the brutality of what is of what you see in the movie it is a grisly film i mean i think that's a good way to describe it it is yeah. just grisly at yep. times throughout they spared no expense with the brutality in this movie um and i yeah. don't think it's gratuitous i think it's all very kind of like this unfortunately goes well with what's happening right now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
it's interesting because it I don't know that it ever feels oh shoot what's the word I'm looking for it does it it never feels gratuitous but it's also to your point I mean they don't they don't pull any punches like it's when stuff is shown it's legitimately brutal and it's a gut punch for sure I mean it just and I think it goes well with I was struck again rewatching this because I you know I own it and I've rewatched it a few times over the years. I am constantly struck by how tense it is. Like once it reaches the point where you're like, oh no, like this is what the situation is basically for the rest of the movie. Like it's a contained siege movie, essentially. It just manages to consistently ratchet up the tension. And so every every sort of like punctuation of violence in it just serves to reinforce once again, like what a bad situation these characters are in. So this... Uh, movie was directed by Jeremy, another Jeremy, uh, yeah. Jeremy Saulnier. I hopefully I'm saying that correctly. He, uh, correctly. he also wrote this, and uh, he wanted to make this movie partly because as his career advanced, he knew he would not be offered the chance to make a movie as ultra violent and bleak as hmm. Green Room, and uh, that no novice filmmaker would be given the chance to direct it either. And he had made a movie prior to this called Blue Ruin, which I haven't seen, but I'm now interested in seeing. It's, and it's got, really good. It got really good reviews. I I understand there's some people that felt Blue Ruin was a better film than Green Room, but I mean, obviously I will have to make that call yeah. when I finally get around to seeing it. So he wanted to make another demanding film mm. and was actually kind of terrified after the success of Blue Ruin and was worried that if he didn't fast track this, he was just going to be kind of he was going to be discovered to be a fraud that it never ever happened that <laughs> it would never ever happen that's a quote from him yeah that's and i guess he got a bunch of offers in hollywood and he just was like nope i'm gonna go i'm gonna do this so and uh given that this came out in 2015 this was right around the time that a24 which put this out was definitely starting to gain some traction as a uh, distribution house for horror and I guess like some other thrillers and, and yeah. movies of that ilk. Definitely like very intense, moody films that had a still have a, a, a I guess like I don't know. I maybe the word pedigree is a little pretentious, but still had this sense of like traditional filmmaking uh, yeah. as opposed to a lot of movies that had come out in the early two thousands and even forward that kind of all started. I mean, I feel like a lot of the major horror movies all have a very distinctive look, like all the exorcism movies look the same, just as all the saw and hostile and those kinds of films look the same in the two thousands. It's very easy to dunk on a two four. And it's almost like, it almost seems like they're aware of the kind of films that they put out at this point. But yeah. this was before they started having like hits like midsummer and the lighthouse and, everything everywhere all at once which won a bunch of oscars so this was still in like their developing phase producing relatively smaller features and this was one of them and like yeah. man like just a lot would change over the next seven years and also right before trump entered office like he was yeah. gearing up to run and was running i guess like he was basically just about to start the actual campaign and uh getting into the election and you know, here we are in 2023. Yeah. Getting ready to revisit it all over again. So just the, the timing and everything is just very, uh, you know, interesting, kind of like interesting look back, even though it's not a long time ago, it's still, yeah. uh, it feels like a long time ago. <laughs> it's been yeah, an exhausting time ago. Yeah. 
It's been at least 20 years since then. <laughs> <laughs> because in our eyes, at least, uh, you know, this is a good movie. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit more abstractly than doing yeah. the typical play-by-play. Because the premise is pretty straightforward. A punk band gets stuck in the green room of a club operated by neo-Nazis. And yep. I think one of the strengths of this premise is that the sides are clearly defined between the punk band called the Eight Rights uh, mm-hmm. and the neo-Nazis. We don't yep. have to spend time understanding why the neo-Nazis are the way they are. Yep. They're neo-Nazis. If you don't know what a neo-Nazi is, you're living <laughs> in a way better reality than this current one. Well, and what's crazy too is, uh, you know, and I feel like there are little moments that I sometimes forget about in this film. And one of the, you know, again, one of the things that just ratchets up the tension and makes stuff so heartbreaking for the band is like they they nearly made it out before yeah. anything happened. It was just like this random chance thing where they saw the wrong thing and then they couldn't escape. Like, I mean, they were literally on their way. They played their set, were literally on the way out the door. And one of them was like, oh, my phone. And then goes back into the green room, sees the wrong thing. And then it's, they're, they're just screwed. Well, if they had left, then inevitably in like 10 years, somebody would have been like, they ain't rights played at a neo-Nazi club and they would have been canceled. So <laughs> that's what happens in the alternate universe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And they were like, well, we were just trying to get money. And that's the thing. I mean, there's so many little things about this that he gets right about independent bands, about bands who are literally you know, driving from show to show, hoping to make enough money for gas and food to get to the next show. That's literally the reason why they're doing this. I mean, because the show that they were supposed to be playing maybe in Washington the the night before or whatever, because they I think they refer to it like heading down to port. I they're, they're in the Pacific Northwest. It's not yeah. explicitly stated where. Yeah. But basically like the show falls through, they play this almost hilarious midday set of i think a mexican <laughs> restaurant or, yeah or like a diner or something yeah it's and, really and, odd and like get like no money for it yeah so that you know it's it's the desperation of needing to be able to you know the promise of i think 300 bucks or something to play a show is like all that they need in order to be able to get back home to arlington and so yeah every little and i think that's the thing that, that i love about this movie is it's very tense and parts of it feel probably like almost out of body surreal just because of how high the stakes are and yet so many of the the decisions that are made are very human decisions like there's nothing about it where you're like "Ah, i might have done this differently like the world itself as it is for these characters functions exactly the way that you think that it would yeah there's there is one scene in particular that is kind of worth mentioning in regards to that we'll get to it when we get to it that actually is kind of a an in, there's an interesting perspective to it that i i want to uh, address uh later on um but yeah i totally agree that i think it showed how being an independent touring band operates and like how fucking hard it is yeah uh, they they show that in the beginning and uh you know i think i think for the sake of the story like is it a little bit is it a little bit of like a creative choice to be like, well, you know, the only opportunity we had was to play this. I think in real life, most fans would be like, nah, I think, well, okay. I don't want to say most fans, but I want to say most level-headed people would be like, ah, you know what? We don't need the money that bad. Right. And I right. think it's that, uh, I think that's like one of the really, really kind of like fictional aspects. Cause I feel like a yeah. band of 
the band that's in this movie that ain't rights. I feel like if they were real, they seem like the kind of people they're like, nah, we should just go. Yeah, because that's that's true. As soon as the guy from the again, wherever they were at the beginning, you know, the show fell through, he does tell them he's like, you know, they're they're right wing technically ultra left wing (laughs) yeah yeah it's that weird that weird joke about like how ultra they go so left it turns into like basically the same thing as going so far right yeah it's like it's not even about the political ideology anymore it's just like lost in the mire yeah yeah and he calls him he was like boots and braces type stuff and he's like just stay away from what oh he has that great line he says something is like I'd recommend playing your earlier stuff. So like hinting that maybe their newer stuff is more political or something. I don't know, but it just, he tells him, he's like, you know, stick to your older stuff and you should be good. And then, you know, just get out of there. Well, I guess that, I guess in the sense that they showed up at the like club and it's like, yeah, these people look sketchy, but there's nothing like outside that says anything. And it's really when they get to the actual green room, they're like, "Mm, this looks pretty not great. And like, there's, it's just plastered with stuff just the most awful like bigotry and like a giant confederate flag like yeah. literally like things that say like white supreme like white power and like yeah. you know swastikas it's it's awful like if i walked in there i'd be like uh i uh, excuse me i need to speak with the manager immediately <laughs> or i I've, I've taken violently ill i'm gonna throw up on the stage so we'll just we'll go and i'll find the restroom <laughs> yeah uh, restroom uh, in another town over Right. <laughs> um, I will say though, if you do want to hear some more good like stories about that kind of touring experience and where you like wind up, because people do wind up in situations they're like, oh, we didn't realize it was going to be like, yeah, this kind of thing. There's a good podcast called Tomorrow We Die. It's hosted by John Wisniewski from Sand Rider and mm. Akimbo and Jeff McNulty from Bloodhag, and they talk to a lot of different bands that are of definitely like of the touring uh you know like definitely like i haven't heard of all of the bands but they're all on that kind of we're successful but we got a tour still you yeah know, not like we can show up and play like one tour a year whatever we yeah. want at huge venues it's you're playing yeah. these kinds of things and sometimes it's great and sometimes it sucks and sometimes some really weird shit happens <laughs> Yeah, and that's a perfect description, I think, of, you know, everything I've heard from my friends who are in bands that, that you know, did any level of touring, I feel like it's a perfect summation of just, like, you don't always know what you're getting into, and so much of it just, you know, kind of can change on the fly. At, at this level, like, obviously, you know, if you're a big band and you have control over everything, it's a whole different story, but for bands that, yeah, drive from show to show, go to these small venues, go to towns, you know, looking for opportunities. It's just a whole different ballgame. We'll run through the cast of the film, uh, starting with uh, Anton Yelchin as Pat, the bassist of the Ain't Rights. And sadly, this was his last theatrical movie because uh, he mm. passed away in June twenty on June 19, 2016, in a, a really awful manner. And I mean, yeah. what a bummer, because he was a good, good actor. I liked him a yeah. lot in a number of films I saw and I actually liked him a lot more than kind of that, that other crop of like, you know, Jesse Eisenberg's that kind of yeah. popped around. I felt like he had a bit more, um, I, w- I don't know if edge is the right word for it, but I, I just liked his kind of presence more than some of yeah. those other actors at the time. Yeah. 
No, I, I think he brings in the movies I've seen, and I haven't seen all of his stuff, but every every role that I've seen in him, I feel like he brings a certain level of just I, this might sound weird, just sort of soul or heart. There's just like something there where it feels like he's bringing something beyond just what he's you're seeing on screen. And I feel that that's certainly true in this film. It says something when he's probably the best part of Terminator Salvation. Let's put it that way. He's a, <laughs> he's a great uh, young Kyle Reese in that movie. Uh, yeah. They should have just made a movie about Kyle Reese starring Anton Yelchin instead of yeah whatever that movie was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never know how to say uh, this actor's name correctly. Uh, Imogen Poots? Is that how you say her I name? It's Imogen. Imogen? Okay. Yeah. I really don't know. She plays a character named Amber. Also just like looking like just terrified and, and just, you know, about to have like a panic attack the whole time. But also does some fucking gnarly shit in it. Alia Shockett as Sam, the guitarist of the Ain't Rights. Uh, mm-hmm. and most people would probably know her most, you know, best from Arrested Development. Uh, sure. She is not that character in this movie. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, Joe Cole as Reese, the drummer of the Ain't Rights. I believe he was on or it on um, Peaky Blinders, I think. I think he's a British actor. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. He He plays one of the... See, maybe the brother, the cousin of uh, Killian Murphy's character, I think. The younger brother who yeah. uh, is kind of kind of going through, like, trying to make a name for himself. Yep. Yeah. Oh, John Shelby. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he's a good actor. I, I like yeah. him. I haven't seen him in too many other things. Uh, this was actually a, a kind of a an early-ish fil- uh, film for him, but uh, yeah. I like him. I think he's I think he's good. I guess he was in an episode of Black Mirror, which I actually haven't finished Black Mirror. I was just going to say that, yeah, the episode he's in, he, he he does a fantastic job in that episode, and it's a really good one, yeah. And uh, Callum Turner plays uh, the drummer whose name is, uh, or I'm sorry, the singer, excuse me. Uh, he plays yeah. the singer uh, named Tiger. Uh, I'm not really familiar with um, a lot of the stuff he's been in either, it looks like. Also British. And of course... You have Patrick Stewart playing Darcy Banker, the leader of the uh, neo-Nazis. And I mean, he is, this is just such an about face for him because I think most people would know him as playing Jean-Luc Picard and Professor X, you know, two massive pop culture icons that they're good people. <laughs> good, decent leaders. Yeah, people. you know, I, ideally. And yeah. this is just 180 degrees away from that. And I think one of the genius aspects of his casting is how he still delivers his performance with the same heft and authenticity he does for a role like those two. Like he's, you know, Darcy is a very well-spoken and articulate man. I'm not going to say intelligent for obvious reasons, but I mean, you know, look at the caliber of people he has following him. The lowest of the low. Like he's, he's actually a very pathetic person and he can only appeal to people like white supremacists. And I also, but I do like that they let him speak with his normal English accent and they didn't make him do like a weird American one. He's still a terrifying presence of a person. Yes. But one of the interesting things about him is that he really doesn't do, and and when I say don't do anything, I don't mean like he doesn't do it. Like 
he is acting, he is terrifying, he is a presence, but he himself does not really do anything in regards to handling having a band trying to get away from you because you, they saw a murder go down in your club. Yeah. Um, that, you know, not to bury the lead, but that's what kind of sets up the, the whole motion of events of the movie. He really has all of these guys doing fucking shit for him, which yeah. shows how like manipulative he is, yeah. but also just how cowardly he is that he has to have all these people doing yeah. all this dirty work for him. I think at most, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, he might shoot some guns at them at one point. Yeah. And then after that, but other than that, the only time he actually like tries to do anything to kill the band is at the end of the movie when he's defending himself and he's already kind of on his way out. Yeah. I think your summation is perfect because he's really, really smart in terms of pulling all the strings and calling all the shots. But ultimately he's a coward because he he relies on everybody else, the muscle and and you know, people who work the venue, he's relying on them to and his manipulative leadership to to have them do what he wants them to do. But yeah, ultimately once that sort of house of cards falls, there's not much to him. And it's it's not one of these things where I think he's oh, he's just like a guy that ran out of opportunities, so he has to like appeal to them. I, I do think he is uh, like a, a legitimate Nazi. There's uh, yeah. neo-Nazi. There's, uh, he drops some, you know, bad language that I suppose this made sense given his character. And I don't think they used it in a way that was like trying to like throw it in people's faces. Right. Uh, you know, I, you know, maybe a bad defense, but it's just an example of how he does show that yes, this guy is is a, a full on racist. He oh. just happens to be a well spoken one. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's no question that he's yeah he's a despicable human being. And like you said, it's to it's to Patrick Stewart's credit that I mean he's so menacing. He does so much in some ways with so little. Like that's not to discount his talent at all. It's just he conveys so much of a threat without having to go over the top or even just I'm, I'm blanking on the right way to, to put it, but he he's just, his menace is very understated, which almost makes it feel even more threatening. It's like, Oh, I, this guy feels like he's coldly in control and is not even having to break a sweat. Maybe that's what it is. It feels like he's just not even trying and he's already, you feel like he could destroy anyone that he wanted to. Oh yeah, because he's got a legion of people, and I think I think another thing that works is that Patrick Stewart is also not trying to outact anybody in this. Yeah. Like, and it's also Yelchin and Poots and Shockett, Cole and Turner are all fantastic. Like, they are all really good too. Yeah. Everyone's on the same level, so you can tell that there was like a good there was a good rapport with the actors for this. Uh, and Patrick Stewart said in an interview that when he finished reading the script at his country home in England. It was so terrifying that he locked up his house, turned on the security system, and poured himself a scotch. And then he knew he was going to play the role because the character was so horrifying and said it was just going to be an incredible challenge for him. <laughs> I would like to believe that Patrick Stewart does not <laughs> does not condone any of those actions taken by Darcy Banker in the movie. I don't think so. <laughs> and then additionally, you also have Megan Blair as Gabe, uh, who's one of the skinheads and a club employee. 
And he had worked with the director, uh, Saul Nier, before. They'd been best friends for a long time, and he was in Blue Ruin. And the director just didn't see him as belonging in this movie. So he auditioned like everyone else, and he ultimately convinced Saul Nier that he could be this character, Gabe. And uh, Saul Nier of this said, my best buddy was not given a handout. He had to go get Nazi tattoos from the internet, some temporary tattoos, and the vendor initially refused his request so he had to prove he was just auditioning for a movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you also have Mark Weber as Daniel, a skinhead who's in a relationship with a character named Emily, who's someone who is trying to leave uh, the skinhead group, both of them. Uh, you probably would recognize him uh, from Scott Pilgrim, playing a much nicer person. Mm. Uh, Kai Lennox as Clark, a skinhead and dogfight breeder. Um uh, kind of interesting and i think this is completely a coincidence uh I, this movie got some comparisons to john carpenter's uh escape from new york uh, mm -hmm. which i think is a very influential film to a lot of filmmakers i just thought it was kind of interesting that the guy with the dog in this movie is also named clark as is richard mauser in the thing the dog breeder dog <laughs> Henley. just a weird coincidence just interesting <laughs> it's one of those six degrees kind of Things. that's funny i didn't think about that maybe uh, this guy uh eric edelstein as big justin one of the mm -hmm. bouncers of the club this guy is so good at playing people that are just uncomfortable and i don't know where that comes from but he's very very talented because he was in uh, i'm not sure if you watched it, the third season of twin peaks he played one of the oh no, i forget yeah, if he no. i forget if he played an fbi agent or one of, or like uh one of the detectives working a case in the but he's just a very 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 good at playing awkward characters and uncomfortable <laughs> characters but he's also very terrifying in this oh, and yeah. uh so much so that uh, the director came across his picture on IMDb and thought, whoa, that's the character. Wow. That's really funny. No, yeah, he's he's great uh, in this role for sure. And just, yeah, everything having to do with him before. He's a that guy. Like, he's one of the yeah. few, I feel like, that guys that exists kind of, you know, that guys don't really exist anymore. They were always the people you point out in movies. You're like, oh, right. that's that guy. And yeah. he's kind of a that guy. He's kind of one of the remaining that guys. Yeah, yeah. A good character actor, for sure. And then rounding it out, you've got David W. Thompson as Tad, a radio host and promoter. I believe he's is he, he's the guy in the beginning, right? Yeah, he's the kid with the he's mohawk. He's the guy with the mohawk. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Brent Wersner as Worm, a member of the NSBM Cowcatcher oh, uh, that they uh, opened for. <laughs> kind of a grim segue, but this movie is extremely heavy on the music to really help set the mood like just to give you like a little sampling of it like some of the bands i spotted throughout or mentioned like fugazi dillinger escape plan warbringer black sabbath the chromags the misfits the dam steely dan minor threat there are many more we'll get to when we get to the soundtrack yeah yeah and shows up at one point i think yeah uh, the director used to play in a hardcore punk band called no turn on fred um, i've never listened to it i didn't check it out it would I'm sure it's on YouTube or something. Yeah. And he wanted the film to, quote, stand the test of real musicians scrutinizing every uh, frame. So he enlisted Hutch Harris of the American indie rock band The Thermals to teach the actors the musical parts that they would be performing on screen. The soundtrack is largely populated by heavy metal artists, not white nationalist bands. 
he said that he wanted the club to have a more motorhead like atmosphere and had no intention of financially supporting white nationalist arts because if you feature them in a movie, you'd have to pay to use to have their music in the movie. And uh, he didn't want to do that, which is the smart thing to do. Yeah, for sure. While the tracks were recorded separately, uh, the performances by the actors and actresses, they were performing the songs. Uh, mm-hmm. So Anton Yelchin and Alias Shawcut already knew how to play their instruments. Uh, but according to Saul Near, Callum Turner had no experience with any sort of music. Joe Cole also learned to play the drums specifically for this movie. And I think another thing they do well with this is they do a good job presenting the exposition through an interview, which helps establish who mm-hmm. the Ain't Rights are and their ethics. Like they have zero social media presence, which I thought was very funny it's like very old school mentality stuck in current times yeah um and it it you know and i think it feels legit you know like there's their ideas that the window for fame is very small these days compared to what it is decades ago you know and you can have a like a huge moment but it can also just be wiped out because as soon as you're not trending Mm -hmm. on social media you're kind of gone yeah. Um, even bands that were smaller a while, like years ago, they've they've blown up and be able to have like full on careers like decades after they were even conceived. You know, that's not like a dig at anybody being creative and putting their art out there. I think it's just there's a lot of access to music and bands yeah. with the Internet and the tool it provides. So you have to like strike when the iron's hot, basically, or just have an understanding of what you're doing, kind of like what you do, because yeah. I know you have like a full time job, you have a family, but also you you know, you truly care about your music and you make time to work on it. Yeah, for sure. Well, and the other thing too that I love about the way that functions in this film, and and you're right, it's a really smart way. That scene is such a brilliant way of setting up the needed exposition and then moving on. You know, if we want to lean into sort of analyzing this as, it's certainly a suspense thriller, but, you know, if you want to even interpret it as a horror film, that scene and that explanation of not having any social media also gives a good suspension of disbelief later on when you're like, how in the world would a band like this not have any way of letting anybody know where they are? Oh, and- like it completely eliminates like them. It's them. They could have just been like posted on Instagram or tweeted yeah. about it or something like that. Yeah. I mean, if, if they had access to, you know, the internet and phones and shit like that, yeah. which it seems like they all kind of, don't so they have they're just like we have no need for this that seems like bullshit and like you know kind of name like name me a band right now that is doing that you know and i'm sure they exist but they are not on our radar for those kinds of reasons and that's again not to like say anything but like it's very difficult to grow via organic word of mouth as opposed to digital word of mouth because i think there are bands that can like just break through but it's it's much different than what it used to be tape trading and talking about things yeah. getting on your local radio station whatever it was for sure yeah but so it's just it's just it's brilliant from a story from a story writing uh or storytelling standpoint because it just it gives everything that then happens later on that much more plausibility and it's it's asking it's asking the audience to take less of a leap when you realize like oh they're not there and part of the reason why they're not there is their punk ethos and their, you know, the, the explanation that Yelchin's character gives for like, you know, the, the live experience it's there, we participate in it and then it's gone. And then we move on to the next one. So it all, it all just ties together beautifully, both from the aesthetic of what they're trying to convey as a punk band to the nuts and bolts of like, how do you piece a story like this together and have it 
not feel completely outlandish. Because then even when, you know, when all hell breaks loose and you hear Darcy, uh, you know, Patrick Stewart's character making the plans and, you know, he's so detail oriented, like where were they? Who knew where they were going? Uh, you know, what have they called anybody? When was the last, like he runs through this whole checklist of like, what loose ends do we have to cover and take care of in order to try to cover up what's about to happen? And so, yeah, it's just, it's in terms of sort of an economy of storytelling, it's just so well put together. Yeah. I, re- I really didn't even like think about that, but it is such just smart storytelling to do that. And uh, right. I think that again, like that's, you know, you could tell that this guy was very like hyper-focused on making things seem conceivable and like even those details like i feel like people might not even pick up on that i certainly didn't even pick up on that i just was like oh they're like it's not even because they're just like trying to be like hipsters or right different or whatever they're yeah. it, it, it's more of a movie plot point than it is like a re- reality because also it does not seem like he forgot that this is a movie and it's like when you're telling a story you still have to have explanation for things that make sense Although I was going to say, like, kind of to go back to my joke earlier, it would be very interesting to see where, like, Pat would wind up being like, I was once in this band, like, <laughs> what was, like, and I was involved in this experience, you know, yeah. what, like, what is his character like 20 years down the road, you know, is oh, he, man. like, is he making yeah. music? Is he just like, nope, I fucked up and terrible things happened and I've been in therapy for, you know, 20 years now and I will never pick up a bass guitar again i can't use my left arm i'm not saying we should get a sequel it's just like kind of and it's just sort of something interesting to think about yeah for sure absolutely to talk about the soundtrack like this is this movie has a crazy soundtrack now obviously like the official soundtrack doesn't have all of these songs on it it has a Mm -hmm. number of them yeah uh, plus like the actual orchestral music which is good too it's um it's It's definitely It's definitely more of like the John Carpenter approach where it's not intrusive and it just sort of helps to set a mood rather than mm-hmm. to kind of take on a life of its own. Yeah. Like a, kind yeah. of like a, like a Star Wars, if you will, where like yeah. the music almost exists as its own character. And this is, you know, to reiterate a quote of Carpenter, he always likes to think, he liked to think of music as the nice carpeting to just finish off a room if you think of it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the the music in this, it's very it's a lot of hardcore and death metal uh, for the most part. So just to run through it, you've got Taken Out the Trash and Melted by Patsy's Rats, Savage Pressure and White Siren by Battletorn, Legalized Drugs by Fear, Inevitable Failure and Bend the Knee by Hockstetter, the uh Song Corpus Rodis by the band Corpus Rodis, in addition to Vomit Pool and Mutilation and Intensified Gore, which is performed by the band in the movie. That might have been my favorite discovery of it. I was like, ooh, this is just like a really brutal, gross, but cool death metal band that really wasn't around for very long. And as far as I can tell, is not active at all. I don't even know if the people are still doing metal. Yeah, I didn't Um, see I didn't see anything on them really. Uh, what Have I Become by The Human Brains, also performed by The Eight Rights, Magrador by Bio-Ritmo, Sat Around for Peace This Time by Spectre Folk, Taken by Surprise by Poison Idea, Suffer the Children by Name Palm Death, Prowling Leather and Evil Like a Knife by Midnight. 
I mean, I, I don't know all of these bands, but Midnight is probably amongst the more like most like recent of those. Definitely like okay. one of the more contemporary metal bands on there. Pull the String and Sleaze Patrol by Syphilitic Lust, which found out is from uh, My Neck of the Woods. Uh, of course, Nazi Punk's Fuck Off by the Dead Kennedys, also performed by the Ain't Rights. Coronary uh, and By American by Missionary Position, the former was performed by the band. Mm-hmm. Paralyzed with Fear by Obituary. We all know Obituary. War Ensemble by a band somebody you might know as Slayer. Unknown Depths by Harasser, Sinister Purpose, CCR, and Riper Grade by The Bad Brains. Like, just so much of, just like, such an insanely heavy soundtrack. It's packed. I mean, it's just, it, yeah, it's wild. And it's, like, real metal. Like, it's it's not what people like to put together as, like, metal in some of the movies I've watched. Like, Resident Evil is, like, it's all new. I'm not saying new metal is not metal. I'm saying it's very, yeah. like, you know, obituary was not ever as popular as core, you know, and I yeah. think there's like a distinct difference between that. It just, it feels very authentic yeah. in, in that regard. And just so many more fucking metal bands and metal related things are thanked in the credits, like Mastodon and Floor got shout outs and they're not even in this movie. Oh, I, did, I missed that part. That's awesome. Yeah. There's so many like aborted, morbid angel metal blade records got a shout out like just so many uh so many bands got uh acknowledgements and it was crazy that's awesome that's really cool yeah no well and i think you know reading up on some of the stuff too about like uh Solnier's, you know background in music himself and some of the stuff that he wanted to focus on and the, the overall feel of this it all feels organic in the sense that it feels like if it's not punk inspired as they're a punk band or directly punk it's very punk adjacent i mean it's that it's that sort of melding of like old school metal thrash metal and punk like they all just feel like they're you know part of the same family tree so even if it's not like yeah i think there i think to your point there's probably more straight up metal in the soundtrack than there is like straight up punk but it, it still conveys that same sense of just like speed and urgency and sort of the DIY aesthetic. I mean, it's very, maybe not Slayer, but, um, or even maybe not Bad Brains, but a lot of it's sort of um, like low budget, like we're doing this, you know, by the skin of our teeth kind of feel. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's just, that that's kind of the vibe that I get from all of that music is that it's, it's urgent and it's vital because it feels like the bands that made this stuff had to make it. Like, it's not like they were doing it just to, and maybe they were, but I'm I'm certainly reading in my own interpretation to it. But it's it feels like this is stuff. This is art that exists because they needed to get it out. They needed to make it, and that to me is one of the most compelling things about a lot of these genres is that it's not a an immediate grab for popularity or or trying to you know get somewhere else. It's like no, this the end point is the music itself. It's like let's we we have things to express. This is the way that we feel like we can do it and let's let's you know act accordingly kind of things it's interesting given the fact that this was like maybe not like a massive release but it was a wide enough release and probably banked on the fact that like people were like oh my god patrick stewart's playing like a fucking awful villain in this movie like that might have yeah. grabbed some more attention i'm sure people appreciated the music in it and all that but it did it wasn't like all of a sudden there was like this massive renewed interest in like poison idea I'm, right. or, or 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 i'm or like napalm death you know like 
you know, Napalm Death suddenly wasn't getting nominated for a Grammy or anything like that. Like it didn't do yeah. that kind of thing for it. And I think that's because it doesn't make the metal like the, the it's not like what we said on the last episode, like we talked about, we were talking about the gate and how like metal was part of that movie, but not the, mm. it wasn't the entirety of it versus something like Stranger Things where it's like, you have a main character literally playing a Metallica song right. in something as part of the plot. And this is all metal that is presented as all just like incidental background music that's going right. on, you know? Yeah. Nobody stops and has a, a fucking conversation about what's the best obituary album, you know, or something like that. It's just right. this is shit that's going on because this there's another far more important story going on. <laughs> right. I mean, it's true to life, right? For, for those of us that are, um, you know, just full-blown music geeks, if you will, uh, and fanatics is, is that it's central when it needs to be central, but it's also the, it's the wall, you know, to, to build on, I guess, John Carpenter's metaphor. It's the wallpaper of our lives. I mean, it, it, this is, it's part and parcel of who we are and what mm -hmm. we, what we do. I mean, you know, whether you're, focusing on the music, you know, going to a show, actively engaging with it, or you're, you know, on your commute to work and listening to something because you got a, you know, 30 minute drive ahead of you and you want to put something on that you're not going to get tired of, or, you know, the ads on the radio aren't going to drive you crazy. So it's, I, I feel like that that's the space where the music in this lives is that it's, it's, it's an air they breathe. And so it, it's, treated accordingly you know when it needs to be moved to the foreground it is um you know the whole discussion about desert island bands is hilarious and very much a discussion that i think a lot of us have at different points but it's not like we spend our days just focusing on that right so it's again going back to Solnier's, you know background it, you can tell this was made by someone who loves music and who has at least in some small way participated in it because this all feels very sort of naturalistic and organic to the, mm -hmm. story and the way that it's portrayed and the way yeah. that it's live it out. And a couple of really funny lines I thought in regards to their, even the band's own perception of music was, uh, mm -hmm. I forget who says it, but one of them says, I don't want to be in my seventies still listening to minor threat, which <laughs> I thought was so funny because minor threat was a band that uh, we found in high school and kind of, when you first listen to Minor Threat, you're like, holy shit, you've never heard somebody play that fucking fast, that yell, those, like, what are they, they're not even saying words, they're just like, blah, 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 you know, going through yeah. it. And to the point where Minor Threat went through this, like, you know, they're just like punk rock royalty, you can't touch them, like, they're, you know, sure. they're so incredible, everything they did was perfect, and now this band's, like, making a joke about them, you know, right. it kind of shows that, like, you shouldn't put these things so far, like far up on a pedestal, but you can still just be like, yeah, it is fucking awesome. But like right. if somebody else, but, it, but if you put that on for someone and they're like, I fucking hate this. And because I don't like this kind of music, then you probably shouldn't get mad about it. <laughs> so I, I just thought that was like a good sense of self-awareness on their hand. One of the other lines they say about like desert Island uh, ones, which, you know, kind of fittingly I'm wearing the shirt. They said, if I say black Sabbath, do I get Ozzy and Dio? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, if you say black Sabbath, then I'm assuming you get a lot more than just Ozzy and Dio yeah. <laughs> because the dude from deep purple sang for them for a while too. And there were other yeah. dude from badlands. Like they had a lot of singers. So I'm assuming yeah. you get everybody that yeah. played with them, including also ice T. <laughs> Oh, that's right. 
not on an album, but he did show up on a Black Sabbath song. Right, right, right. We kind of talked about the overall plot. They wind up playing this awful neo-Nazi club. They piss off the, the some of the people when they play Nazi punks fuck off by the dead Kennedys. They notice there's a couple of girls in the audience who look pretty uncomfortable with the whole thing. Um, but it's not actually what, it's not actually them playing Nazi punks fuck off that really gets the neo-Nazis pissed off. It's when Pat, Anton Yelchin, enters the green room and sees that one of the girls, Emily, is dead on the ground, Yep. stabbed in her head. He tries to call the cops. This is when everything goes south. They corral them back into this uh, green room at gunpoint and they start trying to arrange a deal with them. They wind up paying off two of their... Uh, white supremacist goons to like have one of them stab the other one so they could be like oh we're the ones that got into a fight because they need to cover up the stabbing and the cops basically they they're you know they're just patsies for them so the cops deal with them and don't know about like what actually happened like real nefarious shit yeah um the guy who kills emily is one of the people from the band Cowcatcher. uh his name is worm he spends a good like i don't know 10 seconds just yanking the knife out of this dead girl this dead girl's skull and it's just and it just gets worse from here like that's horrible and that is just it gets worse and then maybe one of the most chilling moments though is the exchange between pat and worm and he asks him what the second song second to last song they played and when he says it he goes that's when I was told to murder this girl. Yeah. And uh, then he goes out and uh, I believe starts performing with his band. <laughs> like it just starts happening while all this fucking horseshit is going on. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that stuff's so brutal. Yeah. And, and this is a movie where the um, the dialogue lands really almost as hard as the violence. Like mm-hmm. the, the dialogue from the neo-Nazis and the NSBM band members and everybody else working with them is just uh, depraved. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's really sickening. And I guess to the writer's credit, they really do a lot more with that instead of stooping to just like using a lot of slurs and that, and, you know, kind of, obviously they do use the N word at one point. Yeah, and I think that it's poor that there's oh. no glamorizing of it. No, uh, it's yeah, very man. established that this is being said from someone who's very hateful. Yeah, does get their comeuppance by the end of the movie. Yeah, everything having to do with those characters in particular, it's it's very cold blooded and it's very calculating, and I think that's part of what gets at the underlying evil of what of what those philosophies bring about, what those ideologies bring about in the real world, and which is what makes it so chilling in the film to see it portrayed this way. It's like, it's, it's, it's a very calculating, dehumanizing ideology where everything is, is ultimately reduced to basically like devaluing other human beings and turning everything into some sort of a calculation about getting over on the other races on other people that you don't like on those that you hate i mean it's just yeah it's just straight up evil and i think it's one of those things like i one of my favorite quotes about and again i don't know that you can necessarily say this is necessarily a straight up horror movie i think it's certainly horror adjacent but it reminds me of um 
quote I heard years ago from Scott Derrickson, who's a, a horror film and film director. You know, he did like Exorcism with Emily Rose. He did Sinister. He directed the first Doctor Strange movie. He's a guy who comes from a religious background. And, and one of the things that he talked about that he loves about horror films um, is that it's one of the few genres that exist today where you where the audience buys into automatically a, st- a sense of morality that allows you to pit good versus evil. And I think that that's something that this movie does really, really well, is that there's no... Certain stories, you you need nuance and you want nuance. Something like this, where it's just constant tension, tension, tension building, you need to have that sense of right and wrong, that sense of good versus evil in order for, I think, a lot of this other stuff to work. And so I think that's where this really succeeds on one level is like, I mean, it's so they're so clearly bad people. And we see this, you know, you talked earlier about the, the, the time frame of when this was released, there's no hiding that this is still out there. Like, I think oh, it's in, it's in plain sight. It's I, in think, plain I sight. think that's what's so brilliant about this movie is it doesn't pull any punches and try to say like, oh, well, you know, if we understand them from a certain point of view, it's like, no, this is evil. Like, and it's okay for th- certain things like this to be called out and be like, no, this, this shit is evil and this should not exist. And so I think that's one of the other, you know, really compelling things about this film, I find anyway, is that there's no equivocation here. It's just, it is what it is. And you're rooting against hope for these characters to get out and to be able to survive in the face of evil. That idea of like, yeah, Nazis make good villains, but like not in the way that like Indiana Jones fights, like they're almost yeah. like cartoonish, you know, cause right. that's, and I, and I, I, I'm a big fan of Indiana Jones, I, I, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, at the yeah. very least, you know, and it's not portraying them like that. Like they they do portray them as like real people, and like yeah. they make real human decisions. I mean, human in like the scope of like what we you know right. see happen every day. I mean, they they react to things the way that they're going to. You know, there's not like this. There's not this master plan of we're going to take over the like we're trying to take over something. It's like we're trying to exist. And now we're going to deal with the problem in the worst way fucking possible. Darcy makes he doesn't even make any kind of like impassioned speech, which I think is good that they don't make him have like a big villain speech. He makes a little speech at one point to address the crowd, because what they wind up doing is they pretend to blow a generator to clear out everybody so they can, you know, reduce the number of witnesses and deal with the problem of the band being in the green room and he makes this little speech and it's short like it's not he doesn't spend it like going off about you know different minorities of people he just reminds everybody that they're in a movement they've got a neck like a meeting next week or something and you know some free beer for the fact that we have to end the show early like it's almost mundane and i think the casualness of him saying it is the eerie part it's just another bingo night for them you know yes Yes, there's there's a, a a banality to their evil that's very again it's very chilling. It's like oh this is like you just said it, it's it's just another Saturday night for them. Like there's nothing unusual about what they're doing at all. But for anyone that's not uh, a, a part of this, the the uh, the evil of it is immediately obvious and and just the inhumanity of it. So yeah yeah you're absolutely right. They want to exchange this gun between that the band has taken from Justin. They they wound up like knocking him out, 
holding him down uh, eventually and disarming him. Uh, when the power goes out, there's a line that Amber Amber's in the room too. Uh, and uh, she says, uh, she turns, uh, she flicks her lighter and lights a cigarette and then makes Justin smoke. And she says, if the cherry does something you don't like, shoot it. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a pretty great line. And then they're bargaining for this gun. They wind up saying, uh, you know, we will we'll keep the ammo. You can have the gun. Darcy is saying shit like, you were held here for your own safety, which is like just a clear lie, like a yeah. massive lie. Oh, yeah. And this exchange winds up getting incredibly tense and it culminates in Pat, who's doing the exchange, getting his wrist like brutally maimed by I'm not really sure what, but it's one of the more off-putting things I've seen in a movie. Yeah. Uh, his arm wounds are horrifying to look Gnarly. at. His acting is it, like just the response feels genuine. Yeah. The uh, practical effects look so amazing but in like the worst way possible they wind up breaking justin's arm because they were holding him as the bargaining tool and then he uh drops a box cutter i think in the chaos so he gets put a chokehold and they try to knock him out and then amber just winds up cutting his fucking stomach open with the box cutter and he bleeds out it's it's so disgusting yeah Um, it's awful Jeremy Solnier points out the scenes where the band members are forced to play action hero or detective. And he says their inadequacies in these areas are understandable because they're neither of those things. Quote, I agree completely and would add it's a similar exploration to the one in Blue Ruin that sees a, re- a, a revenge thriller focused on a man with no clue how to go about it. That yeah. said, even after multiple viewings, I still can't abide the band handing over the gun. There's absolutely no one who would do so under these circumstances. No one. I refuse to believe it. Nope. It's so immensely annoying that the film immediately recovers with everything that follows. And that's what I was talking about before. I mm. thought it was very interesting that he's self-aware of the movie that he made and he's critical of of even the sort of the sort of like the tropes that he knows that he has to follow in order to tell a a story in a movie because if you i I imagine that he probably would have like had to jump through hoops to come up with a way for that scene to happen as opposed to like what they do and just sort of banks on the fact that they're dumb but likable characters right Yeah, yeah well and i mean there is a certain amount of logic again to it within the world that he's created of like you know they they clearly point out at one at one point because the bullets or the cartridges is as as, uh, as uh, the Justin character says they're so big the gun only holds five and it's like what it's like this big ass revolver yeah I mean what else would you do in that would you literally just point it at the door and hope to like kill Darcy who's on the other side but you don't know if you're aiming it and like you know I'm just thinking through like if I were in that situation. Yeah, I probably wouldn't necessarily want to give up the gun, but I don't know what I would do with it other than just it's I guess it maintains a level of threat that keeps the others at bay. But at some point, the standoff has to break. And so anyway, yeah. And they they also think the cops are coming and it's like very clear that the cops are not coming. So um, eventually they find out that what's going on at this club is that it's not really just a club. They find a heroin lab. That's what's going yeah. on here. Like they actually have something that they really knew do need to like cover up because as we know in society, it's fine to exist as a neo-Nazi, but if you're <laughs> making heroin, like that's a crime. So they just happen to be neo-Nazis that are also making heroin. Yes. 
And Darcy even said earlier that uh, Cal Catcher would be paid off with the heroin in order to keep things quiet. So yeah, just goes yeah. to show you that, like, you know, not great people were, were working no. up here. No. So they decide to fight, fight their way out. They say they're Desert Island bands, which included Simon and Garfunkel, Prince, somebody who stuck with the Misfits, and a Madonna Slayer combo for Amber. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, there are dogs, and no dog owned by a neo-Nazi has ever been a nice dog. Tiger gets his throat ripped out by one of the dogs, and Reese gets stabbed to death while escaping out a window and then bleeds to death, which is yeah. pretty awful. Both awful ways to, to go out. Sam blasts one of the guys with a fire extinguisher as the dog attacks Amber, which she bludgeons with a shrieky mic stand, and that reverb amp squeal drives the dog away. Uh, so they decide to send in guys because the dogs are being bothered by the reverb to kill off Pat and Sam and Amber. We find out along, Darcy also finds us out that one of the neo-Nazis, Daniel, was planning to leave the life behind with Emily, the girl who was murdered. Mm -hmm. uh, this was discovered by Worm, who stabbed her. Daniel does agree to help them, but he gets shot when the neo-Nazis enter the bar again. Like, face just explodes. <laughs> um, they manage to kill one of the Nazis and take a shotgun. Another thing I liked about this movie is that none of the band magically knew how to use guns. This was very much a last-ditch effort kind of ordeal, yeah. so it makes it more harrowing. Yeah. They try to escape, but the Nazis just unload on them. They hit Amber, and Sam gets killed by one of the dogs, despite yeah. shooting it. There's a line that is very interesting that Darcy says, and he's talking to the dog owner, the dog breeder, Clark, and he says something along the lines of this situation got away from me. And then quickly says us. And I thought that was a really oh. smart line to include for him because it's a dead giveaway that he is not actually doing this for a bunch of neo-Nazis. He's doing this entirely for himself because yeah. again, he's a coward and he's pathetic. So he just puts together this wretched place to attract the only kind of people he could build a following with, which is neo-Nazis. Yeah. Again, yeah. I do think he's a, a de definitely a racist, but this is what he's got to do. I'm not sure when exactly this happens, but there's a part where Darcy gives Gabe, the uh, one of the, the, the guy that was in... Um, uh, Blue Ruin. Blue Ruin, thank you. Yeah, yeah, make him uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, he gives him a pair of red bootlaces. And I read that red bootlaces are mentioned a couple of times in the movie, once in reference to people who were allowed to know what was going on. And yeah. once when a care like when when he uh, when Gabe earns his uh, laces and it's the color of an important signal in skinhead culture indicating the wearer has shed blood for the skinhead movement. Racist yeah. skinheads will often randomly attack uh, not white people to earn their red laces. So that's that's a pretty good scene that really drives home the fact of like who these people are. There's really no romanticizing here or anything no. like that. You know, like I think about a movie like American History X and I think that, I don't know if it romanticizes it fully, but it shows like the redemption arc of that getting out of that life, which sure. feels very like foreign right now. And this is very much like, nope, these are the people, this is what they believe in. And they're bad. They are evil. Yeah. And you cannot deny it. And like that's yeah. a really good way to show like how fucking shitty these people are. Yeah, for sure. They go back in. Darcy's like, forget about the dogs. Just shoot them. They <laughs> use the reverb to fuck with the dogs who run off. 
Pat gives this speech about doing about playing paintball uh and they had to like kind of just treat this like a paintball game that he did once where his friend just like went took like a, a walk of courage to take out all these like super aggro like ex-marine people they got paired up with and he yeah. wound up saving the saving the game for them yeah so he's all like he's shaved he's decked out in like face paint and he runs off screaming into the heroin lab to distract the yeah. neo-nazis that go in which allows amber to crawl out from underneath the co- the the couch cushions which i thought was a really good horror movie shot kind of reminded me of like when the alien crawls out of the ship wall at the end of the first movie yeah and she kills one of them with the blade the other one doesn't hear this be uh gabe rather doesn't hear this because he's using a power washer to clean up all the blood Eventually, the other one who goes down into the heroin lab uses up his shots. And when he and Pat wrestle for it, Amber walks up and blasts his brains out with a nine millimeter. They go back into the green room. They run into Gabe, who surrenders. They walk off into the woods with him. But then part ways when they hear gunshots, Gabe says he's going to call the police when he gets to the orchard while Pat and Amber continue on through the woods and they don't believe him at all. I kind of, that was like maybe the only weak point. I was like, maybe they shouldn't have done that. Like that, trusted him or shown him going off to get help. Cause like, was he telling the truth? Was he going to actually like call the cops and be like, I got to just put this behind me. Cause I felt like he didn't have a moment in the movie where he was like, this is so fucked. He seemed pretty excited to get his red laces. I feel like there are a few subtle moments with him where he is unnerved enough. He he strikes me as what's the guy's name? You you ran through the list of the the cast. The cousin Tad's cousin, the Mark is he played by somebody Weber? Oh, Mark Weber, Daniel, the one who wanted yeah. to leave the Yeah, the one who's playing the lead. Yeah, so he Macon Blair's character strikes me as not quite obviously at the point where he's ready to go. But I think the things, the, the events of the evening, <laughs> basically, I think unnerve him to the point where he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm that committed. I don't, at least that's my read of this character. Mm-hmm. I, I could be wildly wrong. At the end of the movie, there is that scene where he does get to the orchard and rather than like walking and turning the other way, he goes across and says, we, we got to call the cops. Please, you know, someone someone alert the authorities or whatever it is that he says. So I don't know. I, I, he strikes me as somebody that is. He's cowardly in a different way. Yeah. Like he, yeah. he probably is a bigot, but maybe when he actually saw what was going on and the amount yes. of carnage and just like, I didn't really sign up for this. I I'm yeah. just, a, I'm really just kind of a bigot and I don't want to like have trouble. And it's mm-hmm. probably not worth me spending the rest of my time trying to get away with saying horrible things about people and holy shit this just all went really bad right yeah also darcy's just like clean it up oh yeah 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 he's He's just like clean up this mess yeah he's definitely like the guy who's put upon kind of the most out of all of them to be like all right this is your mess help us get get through it so a little so a little bit uh cloudy i guess on that but i i think i think you might have the right idea there uh, they wind up coming across Clark and another neo-Nazi basically like working on setting it up so it looked like the band was trespassing and eventually they find Darcy at the main residence. There's a lot of gun exchanges. Clark gets killed. His goon tries to pull a gun on them. They shoot him dead. And Darcy just 
walks away. He doesn't even turn to face them and try to kill them. He just walks the opposite direction and pulls yeah. his gun out. And they just shoot him a bunch of times. He turns around, completely misses when he does try to kill them, and they just shoot him in the face, and he's dead. Yeah. yeah. And if you, we get one of the best lines in the whole film, I think, is when uh, when Yelchin's character just says, he, you were so terrifying in the dark. Because I realized that you, they had never laid eyes on him the entire film until right now, and are probably like, he's an old bald man. Yeah, this that, is the guy who's been calling the shots and who's been, yeah, who plays. Like, just know? this is it. Yeah, like you, this is what's been going on, and it kind yeah. of that's a good way to disassemble just like how, even though he had such control over that group of people, just like how weak his view of the world was. Like he was yeah. such a. He, he existed in such a small little speck of the world and he decided that he wanted to be the worst fucking person and where did it get him? Fucking yep. dead. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, the way that that ends with, with that scene is, I mean, to me, is just so compelling. And and then, I, well, I don't know. Do we want to, I mean, we're basically at the end, but I'll, I guess I'll, I'll say this too. I love that. Um, tell me if this is your interpretation because after that, it ends with them with... Um, Anton and, and Imogen sitting there on the side of the road. <laughs> he go, he's like, I finally figured out my desert island band. And she says, tell it to someone who cares. And then it smash cuts to the credits and starts with CCR's sinister purpose. I interpreted that as CCR being his desert island band. But maybe that's just because I love Credence and I love the idea of the character loving Credence too. It's interesting because uh, Sonia said in a Reddit AMA that there's two answers for Pat's pick of oh, Desert okay. Island Band. One of them is CCR for sure. I think you okay. can definitely interpret it that way. Most viewers feel the answer to Pat's Desert Island Band is evident because of that. Apparently, that's not the case, though. Uh, Sonia was being coy about it and said that there are there's more than one correct answer. One that makes perfect sense given the context of the movie and how everything plays out. And there's another that is something I whispered to Anton on the set that only him and I know. And, you know. Ah, interesting. Which is very interesting. Hit When asked what his was, is Black Sabbath, which is a band mentioned earlier in the movie. True. And uh, there's an, also an interesting part in this where the there's... You can see Pat, he's holding a guy up through the window of this van mm -hmm. and he catches his sleeve and like the tip of the gun on the van mirror while attempting to move around the front of it. Yep. And that actually happened in an earlier take, but they liked that. And I was like, wow. you know what? That I thought that made so much mm -hmm. sense because this guy's got to be fucking exhausted. He doesn't oh. know how he doesn't know how to do this. He's not no. someone who knows how to use a gun. No. None of them use them like well. Well, and you would be awkward, but like you're exhausted, and yet your your adrenaline has to be utterly frayed, and you're trying to make sure that you keep the gun trained on the guy. Of course, you're going to make a mistake moving around an object like that. So yeah, no, all of it feels very realistic. Whether or not you know it's necessarily just true to life, but again, within the world that they built, it all feels very believable which i think is awesome and interestingly one of clark's dogs that had gotten that had run off walks all the way back and winds up there and they think it's going to attack them and it actually doesn't attack them which kind of shows that the dog doesn't really give a shit about what's going on yeah and just lays down next to his master's dead body and i'm like was this dog trained to despise certain groups of people we don't really know 
or is the dog just trained to bite when he's given a command and that's kind of it and it's at the end of the day he's sort of just a neutral animal and just that was the guy that he knew the most and i think like that might be the only amount of sympathy you get for these kind of characters and even then it's really like not defined because you could also interpret it as like that guy was a piece of shit and loved the dog and the dog is just as evil as as (laughs) him but maybe in that moment the dog didn't want to fight it just wanted to be there and it's like well I think that's kind of an open-ended question. I don't really know what the answer is there. I don't know. Yeah. Email us. Send us yeah. an email. <laughs> Let us know what you think. So <laughs> Jeffrey Bloomer of Slate favorably compared the film's genre maturity, amoral survivalism, and malleable sense of good and evil, brutal efficiency, and weary humor to John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And I agree yes. with that sentiment 100%. Yep. I think he's seen that movie, but rather than simply do it over, he takes a very basic premise, brings it into the modern age seamlessly. There's no overt Carpenter references in it. It feels extremely timely. And I'm sure it feels even more timely now. And given the fact that there have been a lot of instances of venues and festivals booking questionable bands in the heavy music scene, let alone just kind of in general, like the idea of a band essentially saying, fuck it doesn't seem really too far-fetched when you're kind of pigeonholed into you have limited opportunities and sometimes those things cross. I think this might be a little bit extreme, but also, you know, it's a movie, it's a story. uh, They're trying to drive a point home. I am glad that by the end of the, you know, at least in the halfway point of the movie, the ain't right decided to get the fuck out of there or try to. And it's just so taut and thrilling and intense and it operates well in the lens of a horror movie because it leans in the barbaric anxiety of being in the presence of these horrible bigots in yeah. lieu of like an actual horror movie antagonist like michael myers or, or the alien or something like that right yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely so good movie i yeah. think definitely yeah. worth checking out completely agree i have one little uh, easter egg here to throw at you that I don't know if you, you're aware of this. I, I realized going back real quick to the soundtrack, you know, it's got like four tracks, I think, on there that are credited to the Ain't Rights. Um, have you ever seen the film uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore? Are you familiar with that one? I am not familiar with that. Okay. It's on, it's a Netflix original, which drives me crazy because it means I will probably never get to have it on Blu ray, but it was directed by uh none other than macon blair and david yao from uh the jesus lizard shows up in a key role in it it is not a horror film it's more of a sort of a dark comedy or at least has dark comedic elements in it elijah wood is in it melanie linsky it's just a it, it feels kind of like coen brothers adjacent where just one thing kind of goes wrong after another and it's just normal people just trying to live their lives anyway the reason the reason why i bring it up is the same uh blair brothers brooke and will did the soundtrack but on the cd version on the cd of it and i i don't know if they released this on vinyl and there's actually a track uh number 17 from the ain't rights so technically Maybe there's some sort of like little small ain't right cinematic universe between this and Green Room. And also with that fifth track on here. Or it's just like a fun little nod. Oh, you know? 100%. 100%. I'm just having fun with it. But I mean, basically it means there's like four or five ain't rights songs out there where I'm like, man, 
put out an EP, <laughs> like, which kind of ties in with one of the lines that they have in the beginning of the film of like, yeah, we might have enough for, uh, for a seven inch or something, I think they say during the interview. So anyway, it's just one of those things where I'm like, oh, this is fun, whether it was really just like a little nod or whatever. You've got, you know, Ain't Rights and Green Room. And then in this movie, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Um, they they pop back up. They're not in the film at all, but in the soundtrack, they have a, a little presence. So just something, something fun. And if you want, you can watch this. It's on HBO. That's how I watched it at this yeah. time. You can get it on DVD. I just saw you pull up the DVD. So yeah. it, it's definitely available. Uh, I strongly recommend checking it out. I think it's a really great movie. You know, and it's one of those movies that like gets great reviews and undoubtedly like this was never going to be nominated for an Oscar like by any stretch. Um, right. But it was like one of the best reviewed movies of 2015. Just like the last movie we talked about, The Gate, fictional band, love fictional bands. Like I love the idea of fictional, especially when it's a good fictional band. Um, yes. But, you know, most fictional bands are kind of fun because they're usually kind of poking fun at or being some kind of homage to a real thing, you know? Right. So uh, this is another one if those, you know, you could classify it simply under the fake band banner, you know, that'll be its IMDb gag. has a fake band in it. Right. But besides uh, this, um, have you been watching anything else? I'll let you go first since you're the guest. Yeah. Movies you've been checking out lately. I've been just delving into a lot of genre B, B films. Um, I've been working my way slowly through uh, the filmography of Albert Pune, who just actually recently passed away either end of last year or beginning of this year. He's a Hawaiian act uh, director who just did a lot of really interesting, like really high concept, but low budget films. He was constantly fighting for, uh, you know, bigger budgets and didn't always get them. Uh, so his stuff is really interesting to me. Um, and I'm also currently working my way through um, a number of Toby Hooper's films that I haven't seen. I'm a huge uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan, both one and two, which he directed both of those. You know, obviously Poltergeist. Um, but I'm checking out some of his lesser known stuff, some of his later films. So that's really interesting just to kind of see where his career went. And just sort of the the overall scope of what you know he did while he was he passed away a few years ago as well. So yeah, that's what I've been I've been d- diving into lately. There's one of his that I've been wanting to check out for a while. Life Force. It's on Shutter. At least I thought I think it's on Shutter, but I've been wanting to check that one out. Space Vampires. It sounds pretty. I just cool. I actually just watched that a few weeks ago, and yeah, it it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It definitely um, is a, a weird and, and quirky film. I think it's also on. Tubi as well. So if <laughs> Tubi, it's just like the reservoir of like unexpected gems and weird shit. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> I watched I Saw the Devil, uh, another Ooh. movie of uh brutal violence, like just epic proportions, like bru- ridiculously brutal revenge movie. I it's mean so good. It's rough. I mean that yeah, it like is. it's but it's that it's a it takes the interesting concept of terrible person does awful thing to main character, main character tortures the villain, but is the main character like in doing this just as bad as like the monster that yeah murdered his uh fiance or or, or whatever it was. 
Uh, it's a it's a rough flick, but I mean, I liked it. And, you know, it's definitely a movie. I think you got to just kind of sit in and be like, you yeah. got to just brace for what comes. It's brutal. Yeah, it is. But a good movie. I also watched Dagon, which is another Ooh. one of the like Stuart Gordon, Brian Yuzna, Lovecraft movies. But I know it's such a perfect film, but I did enjoy it all in all. Uh, it's got a lot of fun Brian Yuzna monster people. Not the best CGI, but it's kind of charming for the time. Not quite as good as From Beyond or mm-hmm. uh, Reanimator, but I did like it. I, I definitely think, I feel like a lot of re- like reviews that I saw for it at the time were like pretty bad, but I yeah. thought it was a very enjoyable uh, romp. I think it definitely pulls from some other uh, Lovecraft sources besides the the main one it's based on, which is uh, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Okay. Uh, we also watched The Raven with Vincent Price, and I was not expecting that movie to be so weird and funny, but it was. Uh, so I had a great time. Watching. We've been having a really good time watching the Roger Corman stuff nice. uh, from around that time. Uh, My Bloody Valentine, which I thought like overall was fine. I thought the killer in it was really cool, and I liked the location um, in like a mining town made it to be uh, kind of like better than your average slasher film. I certainly liked it more than most of the Friday the 13th entries. Yeah, yeah. I watched Blood of the Dragon, which was a highly entertaining Hong Kong Taiwanese martial arts film directed by, I was surprised to, I mean, and I don't mean this in any way, but I was surprised to find I was directed by uh, a woman, which clearly shows my ignorance of who was involved in these kinds of films. Her name was... Cow Pao Shu, uh, but okay. I thought it was a really uh, fun movie. Earlier today, uh, before we recorded, I sn- managed to sneak in a movie called The Seventh Curse, which is another Hong Kong movie. It's an adventure movie. I got this from 88 Films in nice. the UK. And this movie just does not give a fuck. It has absolutely like wild special effects, a lot of blood and goo, creatures, kung fu gunfights a cult a lot of stunts like it's just bonkers but i would highly recommend uh it's very short it's like 85 minutes long there's a part where a guy gets ensnared in a rope trap and he gets ripped in half by two ropes pulling on him that's not even the craziest thing that happens in the movie but when that happened i just was like oh my god (laughs) um Weirdly, maybe the the strangest thing that happened was that I recognized some of the music from an old documentary I used to watch about prehistoric life that used stop motion. So I wonder if it was like public domain or something like that. Just a weird coincidence. But yeah, Yeah. strongly recommend The Seventh Curse. I did see that it's on Plex, Public Plex for streaming. I... Hmm. Public Plex is not the best, but if that, if that's your only option, then check it out. Otherwise, you can pick up a copy from 88 Films. Uh, but yeah, I, I yeah. loved it. It was insane, and I thought it was great. <laughs> and then outside of horror, I watched the movie Talk Radio by Oliver Stone, which I thought was a pretty goddamn great movie about a uh, radio, an FM radio broadcaster who winds up in a very weird situation. It was actually inspired by the murders of albert berg which who, who oh, he wow. was a uh, a real radio host who was murdered by neo-nazis actually oh wow okay yeah and uh while we were in uh, long island this weekend for a wedding uh we were subject to what was available on hotel cable so we did watch we, we flipped through a lot of a lot of things but notably we watched uh the italian job remake Totally enjoyable film, but man, Mark Wahlberg sucks, and so does Edward Norton's facial hair. 
<laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, I actually I just remembered. Yeah, we went. I went to the theater for the first time. I saw that movie like two or three times in the theater. Yeah, no, I remember when it came out. It was a lot of fun. But yeah, we I actually took my two oldest daughters to see uh, uh, the new Guardians of the Galaxy yesterday yesterday morning. So that was a lot of fun too. That's that's probably the most recent thing I've watched. Yeah, it was a good time. We we really enjoyed it. And uh, TV wise, I've been loving the uh, Godzilla official Toho channel on YouTube because in addition to airing a uh, a show from like the 90s, which was made with toys. I'm not even kidding you. It was made with Godzilla toys. They are producing uh, a new original show called Chibi Godzilla, which is just short chibi anime versions of Godzilla, which is, yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's very silly, but it's actually really funny. Oh, wow. And I've, and now I am uh, also uh, committing back to watching all of Metalocalypse, which you know, just nice. so good for many, many, many reasons. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Have you been uh, uh, listening to anything that you would like to share or talk mm. about? I've got, a, I've got a few. We recorded this is we're recording relatively shortly after the last episode I did with uh, John and Chris, so I haven't checked out that much, many movies or yeah, yeah, that many albums. So forgive me. Let me think. I'm, I'm looking over at my tape collection. I've been listening to so one of my buddies uh, is has a solo project called Henges. I've been listening to that. He just released the new album. Um, I think just came out on Friday, uh, so I ordered a tape of that. It's like industrial noise stuff. Um, it's it's really really good. Um, maybe Godflesh adjacent, um, but with like some dub and some yeah some electronica influences as well. I'm actually doing a couple of he ha- he uh, hired me to do a series of four uh, lyric videos for him, so I've been like knee deep in that. Just listen to a lot of that as I as I create these videos for him. So that's been a lot of fun. <clears throat> Listening to some electronic stuff. Uh, there's an artist called Brahms that uh, does some really cool stuff. Some older albums. I've been listening to those. I I finally have a, a car now. We've been living uh, with just one vehicle for a number of years after we moved back from California. So I got a, a super cheap, old twenty three year old Buick Century. A couple. <laughs> so and the thing that makes me happiest about it is uh, it actually has a tape deck. So I've been taking all of my tapes and slowly like working my way through a bunch of those. Uh, there's a band from uh, England that I really like called Lovely Wife. So I was listening to their, um, they're just like this weird noise, heavy bands, definitely some punk, uh, some uh, butthole surfers influences, but just a lot of like drony stuff too. So yeah, that, that's some of what I've been listening to lately. Uh, lately that I've really enjoyed, uh, Do- Dorothea Cuttrell from uh, Wittenhan put out another solo album. It's called Death Folk Country. Nice. Uh, I, I, really liked it like her voice is just magic to me i think she has one of the most incredible voices she's amazing uh, i think yeah. she's great check i uh, heard about this band called toilet rats through uh toilet of hell and oh, it's yeah. like they've this is their like fourth album or something like that or a fourth ep it's just called four like roman numeral four and it's like synthy and fuzzy weird punk stuff it's a oh, short cool. album to the point very fun really nice. nice to listen to you'd probably dig it yeah yeah and uh I checked out this band also. I found out through uh, Toilet of Hell called Fires in the Distance. Put out a, an album called Air Not Meant for Us. 
definitely more on the string and keyboard heavy side of doom kind of like paradise lost but it's also like very complex it has like weird 90s prog stuff which i i guess we're going through a 90s prog metal like resurgence but it sounds cool now uh okay. so i it was very cool man i think i'm gonna listen to the album a few more times but i did really really like it upon uh initial listen and uh, i also went to go see fever ray at terminal five which i don't like the venue very much um it reminds me of the prison from face off but the concert oh, yeah. was really good <laughs> and uh i also saw bonzilla at saint vitus with geezer and wizard rifle and uh, wizard rifle was fucking awesome two-piece kind of a big business uh, situation but uh guitar instead of uh bass and okay. just like a thousand pedals and just a really cool interesting band uh, oh, from nice. Portland. i'll have to look them up that sounds awesome and lastly, I'm just going to shout out uh, Creeporama for putting out some banger The Void shirts that I cannot wait to get my hands on, or yes. uh, my torso, rather. I don't. I know you're a big fan of the movie The Void. I'm not sure if you jumped on yes. that as well. I didn't, but I did jump on the, their pre-order a couple of weeks back, actually, of The Green Room. And so they did a... That's they true. Did a, they did a number of killer designs, but I got a, a vinyl mat, uh, you know, for my turntable and then i got the um they did a design that was made to look like an ain't rights uh tour short tour shirt with like uh sort of like flyer art collage on the front and then on the back like a series of tour dates so i was real stoked to grab that and super comfy and actually fit me because i'm like six two and you know such and such hundred pounds and you know <laughs> And I just have a long torso, so it's always a it, it's always a real crapshoot whenever I buy a, a t-shirt sight unseen, uh, whether or not it's actually going to be long enough for me. But there, thankfully, it was cut long, and so yeah, real stoked on what they've got. And I think they've been teasing. I don't know when it's going to happen, but they've been teasing to bring this full circle, a uh, a freaked uh, shirt design at some point. So I'm on the lookout for that whenever they announce it that uh will be awesome i uh, i really like them and i know that like i know that this their kind of uh brand is very in style right now you know it's sort of like sure. the, boot, the bootleg horror movie and kind of stuff but i really think creeperama is like i really like them the most yeah. out, uh, out there i think that their fits are nice the designs are really good they offer a lot of options they always say when there's extras or leftovers uh around they and I think they ship pretty well too. Yeah, they know, do, I think yeah. I think some of these other ones that we've bought stuff from, we've wound up waiting a long time for them. And you yeah. know, I understand some of them are like one person operations and stuff, but totally. sometimes it's gotten a little bit bizarre in terms of like, yeah. And I know that like the logistics are fucked, but like right. I don't know. Definitely a fan of Creeperama here. Yeah. We have more than a few of their shirts uh, in, yeah. in our in our. Uh, in our house here so that's awesome jeremy where can uh, people find out about you uh if they so choose to um a couple of different spots you know the the band music stuff we talked about earlier is on bandcamp so koheleth noise uh dot bandcamp.com is a great place to start or just koheleth noise on twitter or instagram um i also have a couple of different outlets now where i'm trying to bring together the communities that i'm a part of uh, and really just help, you know, just just bring folks together that are working class musicians like myself and, and folks that are doing a lot of DIY stuff. So I have a sub stack that I started uh, called Channel Minus Six. And so I, I 
try not to bombard people's email uh, inboxes very much at all. So it's it's kind of a week or every other week. I just feature interviews with my friends, um, point people to music that I'm listening to, cool stuff that I've seen online. Um, so that's another place. And then lastly, um, uh, I also have a, a Discord community named after one of the Gohella songs uh, called Buzz, uh, Toxic Waste Buzzkill. Um, and that's um, a place where it's, it's just a, a, a small community right now, but again, just a lot of folks that love art, like stuff that's on the fringes, and uh, it's just a chance to share what we're creating, stuff that we're listening to, stuff that we're watching. So if anybody's interested, they can hit me up on uh, you know, Twitter, on Instagram. I'll be happy to share an invite, but that's just another place where, you know, as social media continues to tank, <laughs> it's a place where, you know, hopefully the the communities and the actual relationships and, and friends that I've made in these spaces it's a place where we can stay in touch and, 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 you know, just encourage each other and, and um, help each other out with art and other things that we're making. I, I find in this segment, I'm often remarking about just like the decline of like, you know, it, like I know we're promoting these things and it's like for anybody who's interested, obviously like, thank you. Thank you for checking out Jeremy and anyone else who's come on here at my sure. shit. But it's also getting to the point where like, we're looking at the platforms and we're like, God, what the fuck is even happening? I mean, just every time I come on here with someone, there's like a new awful thing that's happening on Twitter. Like oh. this fucking landscape is just, yes. it's burning down. I mean, I'm going to have to open a PO box for this probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, hey, zines will probably, physical zines will continue to thrive probably. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot of what I'm, that's why this, the, I got the sub stack started and that's why I, you know, I, I've, I've been migrating more and more. I'm still on social media and part of that's because it's what I do professionally for my full-time job. I, I will say this, one of the things that I love about the Discord community is it feels like it's a throwback to like message boards that I used to be a part of back in the day. And that, right. that's, that's a lot of fun too, where it's, I mean, there's literally, there's no advertising. You're not having to block people in your feed. It's just like, and, and it's also very, I, I'm a part of a few different discords that are much more active in terms of like, you know, they have, uh, you know, larger number of users in the channel and folks, commenting constantly but the one thing that i really like about um the toxic waste buzzkill one is that it's i mean people are just checking in as they have time throughout their day you know and good discussions will pop up and then they'll they'll sort of die down and you can kind of tell folks are going on about their day there's like no pressure so i don't know there's something about it that's very refreshing in the midst of musk doing more dumb stuff on twitter to sink his investment i don't know man it's just it's it's so hard to know anymore about any of that stuff so these feel like opportunities to try to just say you know at the end of the day this is why i'm i mean th this is why i got on social media and i think why a lot of folks like us did was just to connect with like-minded people find cool stuff share cool stuff and um so that's what this this kind of feels like is an attempt to sort of recapture that if at all possible. I think so. I mean, I've seen some efforts to do that. And like, I definitely spent a lot of years on message boards and I have a lot of nostalgia kind of for that time. And uh, yeah. I think it's cool. Like, I like the idea of having a web handle and it not being like... Uh, your society. name? Yeah, well, not your name, but also just like, you know, I'm whatever, stick it up for my rights, 
55 or some <laughs> shit like that. You know, it's just, I'm, I, I don't know, like whatever. Yeah. I, it's like whatever random bullshit you came up with. Like I was splurg on whatever right. message board and I am splurg to this day. Right. <laughs> um, but if you want to find out more about me uh, and my bullshit, uh, it has nothing to do with uh, the name splurg. You can visit uh, the website diaryofdoom.com. You can check out the podcast there along with uh, my concert photography or you can follow the podcast along at diaryofdoom.podbean.com. You can follow Diary of Doom on Instagram, like it on Facebook, and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Instagram's kind of the place you'll find out about all the happening shit that's going on with it, which there's, you know, not that much, just sort of having fun with this at the moment and finding out how many good and or absolutely fucking dog shit uh, movies there are about heavy metal and uh, marijuana. You can, like I said, you can find that on Apple podcast spotify or whatever shady podcast streaming app you want to use and if you want to suggest a movie for me to discuss on the podcast you can send an email to diary of doom 1968 at gmail.com and that will wrap up this episode of it jeremy thank you for coming back on again um i'm sure we'll have you back on to talk about some other movie in the future right on man thanks so much Okay, no religious hope Promise that you for yourself It ain't hard God to spank your head When a jack still lives inside your head Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up To come the fuck get out of here You ain't no better than the bouncers We ain't trying to be police And you ain't the cops It ain't anything Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up Shoot thing!